and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 226, The Japanese Are Not Ready for Us Yet. Last time, Prime Minister Hideki Tojo had browbeat Emperor Hirohito into approving his war with the United States that would begin with a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. This would allow the Japanese Navy to dominate the sea lanes of the western and southwestern Pacific, at least long enough to take lands which held vital resources and develop a defense in depth. By the time the Americans had recovered enough to go on the offensive, the cost to them in lives would force the United States to accept Japanese dominance, just as Nazi Germany held sway over much of Europe. Of course, all this was dependent upon the success at Oahu. With the orders given, word was sent to the 1st and 2nd Air Fleets on their way to the attack point north of Hawaii. As word spread, the young pilots on board became exhilarated. At last, they would be able to pit themselves against the arrogant American and British soldiers. As most young men feel impregnable, these pilots were sure of the outcome. As for the ranking men back in Japan, they too were elated. Gone was the tension that months of negotiations had allowed to fester. Now there would be action. Now the world would see what a superior warrior the Japanese were. And the pro-war men under Tojo were elated as well. For not only was Pearl Harbor to be laid low, but in conjunction with Operation Z, the U.S. held Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island, along with British-controlled Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong, were to be attacked as well. These coordinated assaults were to overwhelm the Western powers into acceptance, as they were designed to. Back to the six Japanese carriers heading towards Oahu, the young pilots, now knowing they were going to attack the Americans at Hawaii, again and again went over their models of American warships. As may be remembered, on December 2nd, Tokyo ordered its diplomats in North America and Southwest Asia to destroy all their decryption codes. Further, Ambassador Nomura in Washington was ordered to stop at once using one code machine unit and destroy it completely and, at the time and in the manner you deem most proper, dispose of all files and messages coming or going and all other secret documents. That same day, Nomura had received a question from FDR that was to be sent back to Tokyo. FDR believed he was keeping the Japanese on the defensive with such tactics. The question was rather direct. Why were additional Japanese forces being sent into southern Indochina when the country was already theirs by occupation? The truth, as the White House could have guessed, was this buildup was too ready for an invasion of the Dutch East Indies. However, Nomura calmly replied, as he truly did not know of the coming attack, that the additional troops were to help with the increased Chinese activity. Besides which, the figures indicated by FDR were way off. The increase in troops was not as great as the president was led to believe. Another lie, but like the coming attack of Oahu, the Dutch-controlled territory was only a small piece of a much larger action. 
Operation Number 1, the Japanese takeover of Southeast Asia. The next day, December 3rd, as various attack forces were en route to their jump-off points, Admiral Yamamoto visited the Emperor to receive his orders to lead his combined fleet into a war he was against. But as the samurai were taught, once a decision was made, there was no looking back. Only the task before one remained. And yet, as Operation Number 1 called for the simultaneous conquest of Malaya, Singapore, Burma, the Philippines, Wake, Guam, Borneo, and Java, Imperial Army Chief Hayime Sugiyama of the General Staff Headquarters asked Colonel Masunobu Suji, the submitter of Number 1's details, rather sardonically, why should we believe all these attacks will go, as you say, as China is still yet defiant? Calmly, Suji replied that the various territories would fall, and he even went on to give timetables, and in these he would be correct. When the general staff had approved Operation Number 1, they like the young pilots and their officers, did not look back. As such, as the Americans were about to be attacked by Admiral Chiuchi Nagumo's 1st Air Fleet, Vice Admiral Jisaburu Ozawa's Southern Expeditionary Fleet had moved out on November 20th, bound for Malaya. Vice Admiral Ibo Takashi's force of almost 100 vessels was on its way to the Philippines. Vice Admiral Shigeyoshi Inoue's 4th Fleet was en route to Guam, and Vice Admiral Nabutaki Kondo's 2nd Fleet was making its way to the Netherlands' East Indies, Timor, and Burma. The infantrymen aboard the various ships may not have been of the samurai class, but all had been given reading material that proudly proclaimed that they were about to free 100 million Asians from white tyranny. As can be guessed, the Americans were aware of much of these fleet movements as they sailed for various targets. So, it makes sense that Admiral Nagumo's fleet, a needle in a haystack in the North Pacific, was still undetected. On went his fleet, four destroyers, followed by two heavy cruisers, followed by the six carriers in two columns, followed by three submarines. All these were followed by tankers and additional subs, and at the tail end were two battleships. But, as impressive as had been the Japanese military thus far, planning numerous simultaneous attacks, keeping the American politicians at bay with meaningless talks, while confusing the American military with covert moves, there were also about to take place other strikes against the Western nations. In a circle around Hawaii, 300 miles out, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd submarine fleets waited for the conflict to start and began to track possible targets. What's more, nine other submarines were stationed off the American West Coast, again sizing up possible targets, once Operation Z commenced. The Japanese 1st Air Fleet, on its way to attack Pearl, ended December 3rd by stopping for its last refueling before the assault. 
On November 4th, FDR was informed that Magic had intercepted the message to the Japanese embassy in Washington to burn their telegraph codes and to shred all confidential papers. FDR mused out loud to an aide, I wonder when the Japanese will strike. The aide replied, most any time. By December 3rd, the U.S. and British had multiple sources, telling of the various Japanese consulates destroying their codes and machines. Of course, this all meant that a Japanese attack was coming. But again, when and where? Then a British spy in the Philippines added his information into the fray. The intelligence officer sent a message to Honolulu's British intelligence that said the Japanese, already in Indochina, were improving the abilities of their airfields and railways there. That many new amounts of fighters, bombers, tanks, and guns had recently come in, along with 100,000 additional troops. But it was the third part of the message that should have worried the British most, and they would go on to share this message with the local American commanders. It read, Our considered opinion concludes that Japan envisions early hostilities with Britain and the United States. Japan does not, repeat, not intend to attack Russia at present, but will act in the South. So there it was. Japan's mighty navy, Air Force and Army would leave the vast Russian territory alone and focus on the Westerners' colonies and territories. But again, the British and Americans didn't think much of their Japanese counterparts. Worse, when Admiral Husband Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet and the United States Pacific Fleet, received this report, he failed to send it back to Washington, to the Naval Department. He assumed they would receive it by some other means. November 4th ended with Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau telling FDR at 5.45 that evening, I received word that the representatives of the Bank of Japan in New York is closing their office tomorrow under instructions from Japan. Their representatives will leave New York on December 10th. It seems that Tokyo had decided that even their bankers could be sacrificed as pawns, that it would give them a few more days before the Americans would suspect an attack was coming. On December 5th, Admiral Nagumo's first air fleet had been found out, to have come all this way in secret, only to come upon another ship, was heartbreaking. Did this mean the mission was over? Of course, there was another option. The Soviet trawler Uritsky on its way from Portland to Vladivostok, located about 1,000 miles or 1,609 kilometers north of Hawaii, had spotted the lead destroyers at the same time they spotted it. When Nagumo was told all he had to do was order it destroyed, surely the Russian vessel had not had enough time to report their finding. But for whatever reason, and probably not wanting to antagonize Soviet Russia, as Japan was about to launch a war against the United States and Britain, the order never came. But this begs the question, did the trawler send a report to Moscow? And if so, did Stalin tell FDR? It's hard to imagine such vital information 
not being passed up the chain of command, which leaves us with Stalin. Did he know of the attack coming at Hawaii or some other American possession, and why didn't he tell the president? The best answer is, as the overall situation was relatively calm in the Far East, from a Soviet-Japanese point of view, that it was best for Stalin. It remains so. The truth is, we will never know the answer to either question. Still, as events played out for the Japanese and for Stalin, he would soon have another ally in the war. Later that day, December 5th, Tokyo asked for an update from its spy, Takeo Yishikawa, at Oahu. His reply read, At the moment, Admiral Kimmel has eight battleships, two heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, 43 destroyers, and four submarines. Furthermore, there were just over 100 American vessels between Alaska and the Solomon Islands. However, with the Saratoga located along the American west coast, the Lexington taking planes to the Marines on Midway, and the Enterprise still on its way back to Hawaii after dropping off planes at Wake, Pearl currently held no American carriers. His report went on to say that there was no barrage balloon equipment about ready to deploy should an enemy air attack need disrupting. In fact, the report went on, there probably weren't any barrage balloons on the island, period. December 5th, a Friday, ended for the White House with another meeting. Secretary Hull told the president of Numura and Kurusu, I am convinced they do not intend to make any honorable agreement with us. Secretary of War Stimson added his part. The Philippines are indefensible. We have always known it. But what was not being said, because no one believed it needed to be said, was that FDR and his cabinet had complete confidence in the American Navy. If and when the Japanese rose up, there would be U.S. naval forces to push them right back down. Of course, no one asked exactly how was the Navy currently dispersed. Stimson would later write, it would have been extraordinarily bad form to have asked. At 8 a.m., Admiral Kimmel's intelligence office, in the form of his intelligence officer Edwin Layton, received an alert from Washington. It was the latest of many, but this one said it was to be taken seriously. But weren't they all? Leighton told Kimmel, and his response was to look up Plan Orange, the United States' attack strategy against Japan. Orange, first conceived in 1906, called for the Philippines and other U.S. outposts to hold out on their own until the Pacific Fleet could be gathered. Then Guam and the Philippines would be secured, liberated if needed, and then the U.S. Pacific Fleet would head north for an all-out naval battle with the Empire's Navy, as prescribed by Alfred Thayer Mahon. The question was, would Japan blockade, bypass, or invade the Philippines? That would determine the U.S. naval response once the various warships were assembled. Kimmel then had Leighton contact the last man to tweak Plan Orange, Vice Admiral William Pye, 
In fact, Pye was aboard the USS California, a Tennessee-class battleship that was stationed at Pearl. Layton told Pye of the latest warning, then asked, how should we proceed? But Pye was unworried. When Layton pried further, Pye brought him up short with, the Japanese will not go to war with the U.S. We are too big, too powerful, and too strong. Which was true enough, as time would show. But that did not discount the enemy, currently in a desperate situation, that allowed the pro-war faction there to take control. Kimmel shared Pye's assessment. Over the last few months, Kimmel had supported his own point of view with the following facts. Pearl's Harbor was so shallow, a torpedo wouldn't work. In fact, enemy submarines wouldn't even be able to fully submerge in the harbor. Thus, they would be spotted. Lastly, when large ships came to Pearl, they had to anchor with their bows landward, and when they left, it was up to the tugboats to get them out. Many of the warships were scheduled to sortie on Monday, December 8th, which meant the tugboats were busy on the 6th just to get them ready for departure. No, Pearl Harbor was naturally unkind to anyone who wanted to attack its ships. Everyone in Washington knew the crisis was building and that war was coming. As such, Chief of Naval Operations Harold Stark tried to stay ahead of the game. So he had one of his assistants switch out of his uniform and into civilian clothes so he could pick up Ambassador Nomura, who was known to walk along Massachusetts Avenue on Saturday mornings. Soon Nomura and Stark were huddled together in the American's home. When the talks ended, Nomura was in tears, and Stark told his aide that the ambassador warned, if the United States does not ease up on these sanctions, the military men are going to do something desperate. The question for Stark was, was Nomura being sincere, or was this just another ploy? Trust had long since become irretrievable on both sides. Nomura's day did not get any better. When he got to work, a cable from Prime Minister Tojo was waiting for him. It told him that this was an advance warning, that he would be receiving a 14-part message, which was Tokyo's reply to Hull's November 26th note. But he was not to give it to the Americans until told to do so. Until then, I want you to put it in a nicely drafted form. The last part of the message instructed Nomura not to use a typist, but to prepare the document himself. Nomura could guess what the 14-part message would say. Still, there was no sense of urgency from the Prime Minister's note. That was intentional. The note started coming in a few hours later, around noon. Of course, the Bainbridge Island Naval Station on Puget Sound near Seattle intercepted the incoming message and started transcribing it into English to then send it on to Washington as fast as they could. Though Tokyo had no qualms about invading British territory without a declaration, the two had been rivals for hundreds of years. Its military, specifically the Imperial Navy, had no desire to give the Americans a cause celebre, in addition to actually fighting them. 
Enough Japanese officers had spent time in the United States and understood the Western concept and resulting indignity of a sucker punch. To the Japanese, this was simple prudence. If you were ready for war, you could not be surprised. But that's not how the Americans operated. As such, Emperor Hirohito specifically told Tojo there was to be a formal declaration before Pearl was attacked. Tojo determined that 30 minutes would be enough. He was wrong. Simply, his time frame did not take into consideration any possible human or technical errors, and Nomura and Kurusu would experience both in the next 24 hours, which would inflame the hatred and desire for revenge in almost every American heart. Because Tojo needed his 14-part message to read in a certain way, to cover certain aspects, thus explaining why Japan was pushed into war, the dispatches came across jumbled. First, parts 4, 1, 3, and 9 were sent. Then, two hours later, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 13 came over. These sections were sent just before 3 p.m., but the final part, which made Japan's intention clear, did not arrive until sometime between 9 and 10 that night. That afternoon of Saturday, December 6th, Washington time, before the 14th part was sent, the Americans were going over what had been intercepted thus far. Per diplomatic speak and Japanese vagueness, the majority of Americans reading the document Certainly, the vast majority of military men did not see this note as a declaration of war, or even as a direct threat. Again, the idea of Japan taking on the larger, more industrious country was something they could not comprehend. Instead, most saw this latest message as a rather verbose response that said, Japan does not accept the belligerent whole note of November 26th. However, one of those few that saw the first 13 parts as a threat of war was FDR. It took a politician to see the threat behind the politically nuanced messages. Even more, the message was interpreted by almost all that the British were the main target, hinted at in the note. Still, FDR had his interpretation and so called in Marshall and Stark. Both told their boss that they needed a few more months to ready themselves. FDR replied he couldn't promise that they'd get it. The military men shot back, moving further from their purview. Perhaps we should ease the sanctions. But FDR knew it was too late for that, as he, almost alone, saw the writing on the wall, i.e. the writing of that day's note. Still, all felt sorry for their cousins across the Atlantic. Vice Admiral William Smedberg, he had been a part of the conversation, later wrote, Well, the British are sure going to catch it tomorrow at Singapore. We didn't have the slightest suspicion that there was any threat to Pearl Harbor. During that day's talks, when Navy Secretary Frank Knox was informed that the Japanese had indeed launched troop ships, his response was, Gentlemen, 
Are they going to hit us? To which Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner, Director of War Plans in D.C., replied, No, Mr. Secretary, they are going to attack the British. They are not ready for us yet. Greetings, everybody, from Central Virginia. So, sorry it took this so long to come out, but I'm over my uh, vacation mode, so we're back to business. Uh, there'll be another one coming out in a week or two, because that will be the actual... Uh, well, who knows, because there's a lot I want to throw in. So it's coming soon, I promise. So I just want to thank a couple people and say hi to a couple people. Um, as far as donations, David R. from Ireland uh, donated to the show. Thank you. Frank U. from Power Springs, Georgia. Thank you, Frank. And Yakir M. from Christchurch, New Zealand. So thank you. And I got some more stuff from uh, Yakir in just a second. I'm probably saying your name wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, as far as people who bought uh, mugs, either Churchill or FDR. Um, Frank Yu, again, from Power Springs, Georgia. Stephen O. from Surprise, Arizona. I feel like I should be reading that. Surprise, Arizona. But I didn't do that. Um, as far as new members, um, Michael A. from Issaquah, Washington. I probably said that wrong, Michael, but you just wanted to hear me butcher that word, I'm sure. Uh, Arthur A. from Chicago, Illinois. And David H. from Roanoke, Virginia. A local boy. Hey, David. As far as those who have bought CDs, um, Robert T. in Scotland. Thank you, Robert. Um, and I want to say hi to Debbie P. Her father recently passed away. Sorry, Debbie, but her father had a massive collection of World War II books, which she is going to try to send me some. So, Debbie, thank you very much. If, if you do, if you can, if you've given them all away already, I understand. Um, and also, as far as who has purchased a CD, Hunter W. from Houston, Texas. And uh, I want to finish this off by reading just a small part of Yakir's M's um message to me because he told me about his uh, his grandfather um his grandfather on his father's side vladimir yeah here hope i got this right as opposed to great grand great grandfather but i think it was his grandfather i'm just going to read a part of the email he sent me i hope this is okay so he writes about his grandfather um, vladimir at the beginning of the war and until late 1942 he had trained artillery squads at the academy in central asia when he received the permission to join the front got hit by a bullet quite soon after in one of the fights for the Ukraine. Bullet went through one leg and got stuck in the other. Pretended himself dead and later managed to crawl and find help. Further, Vladimir spent some time in a hospital in Ukraine and returned to the academy. Eventually fought the Japanese starting from a town named Charlar, um, Kilar, I'm not sure how to say it, C-H-A-I-L-A-R, and down to the city of Kwihar, Q-I-Q-I-H-A-R, at the time of Japanese capitulation, all during 1945. So, Yakir, thank you very much for that. And if anybody else wants to send me and stuff, maybe I can read some of it at the end of the show, because it really does give a, a personal feel to these dates and names and places that we're going over. So, again, sorry for the delay, but I'm back, and the next one will not take more than two weeks, because I'm, I'm really getting excited about getting to Pearl Harbor, and then we'll balance out the two theaters of war. So, again, for everybody who supported, uh, bought mugs or whatever, thank you very much for supporting the show, and I'll see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone.